0: I think for many of us, we like to uh, to sing the songs that we had in the Christmas time that we had in this auditorium. We like to hear the stories. We like to see the people and the friends and eat delicious goodies. But I think for some of us, Christmas is really hard. If you're a new Canadian or maybe you're new to Edmonton, you come and you go, I don't have family here. It's a little bit lonely. For some of us who have been hit really hard by inflation, we think we'd love to buy gifts or do those special events and we just can't seem to afford it. So what do we do to have this beauty in the brokenness? Some of you might be familiar with this Japanese idea of kintsugi. And the story started about 500 years ago. A Japanese military warrior was gifted a tea set from China. And after using it for a number of years, it quickly became his favorite tea set, and he broke it. It was made of ceramics. And so he sent it back to China and said, Hey, can you please fix a ceramic tea set that you gave me? And so what happens is they, these Chinese are looking at it going, Well, we don't know what to do with this. And uh, so they, uh, unlike me, had, didn't have gorilla glue. They took these big staples and tried to staple it back together. And unfortunately, it didn't make anything that beautiful. But as you can see from the picture behind me, the Japanese got it back and said, let's turn this into something astounding. And so they took some lacquer and mixed it with gold, and they started painting it over top of the broken ceramic and placing it together. This idea of kintsugi means golden repair. And The philosophy behind it is that if something is broken... We don't just wanna throw it away. It's just not a piece of garbage. We believe that we can restore it and turn it into something beautiful. If the Japanese can create an art to turn something as beautiful as the picture on the screen behind me, how much more does God wanna take our brokenness and to restore it into the original beauty he had intended? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sermon series, Beauty and the Broken. Thank you for the constant reminder that as much as we hope and desire to be perfect at times, we are not. But we worship a God who is, a God who redeems us, a God who restores us, a God who renews us and makes us beautiful. So God, we pray that as we go through uh, some stories in rapid succession, that my words would fall down and that your words would be lifted up. For the people who know the stories, that they would enjoy them all over again. For the people who the stories are brand new, that I would speak in such a way that they make sense and it can be followed. And that we would see beauty in the broken. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I don't know how many of you grew up in church. Um, I was born in the 80s and so we had something called a sword drill and we would have to jump around in the different parts of the Bible to find that piece of scripture really quickly. We are going to jump all over scripture. We are starting in Matthew, but we will also be in Genesis, we will be in Joshua, and we will be in 1 Samuel as well. Over the summer, we did Genesis 1 to 11 and we called it In the Beginning. And I had this audacity to say, I'm going to preach a genealogy. And you guys kept coming back. And so we're going to preach another genealogy today, but a little bit of setup as to what's going on. In Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced um, to Adam and Eve and their sons, uh, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Cain kills his brother Abel, so Abel is out of the picture, and then we are told of Cain's genealogy, and it goes from Cain who kills his brother, and it gets progressively worse and worse and worse until we end up with a man named Lamech, who is a horrible, detestable human being. Adam and Eve have a third son. His name is Seth. And then we also get the lineage of Seth. And we see that from his lineage, people are getting better and better and better. One of his uh, descendants is a man by the name of Enoch. So holy, God said, you're not even going to die. I'm just going to whisk you up to heaven to enjoy being with me. Methuselah is also one of his descendants, the oldest man in all of scripture. And then it ends with Noah, who is so righteous that God says, I'm going to send a flood over the earth, except for Noah. He and his family I will save. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, and for 350 to 400 years, there is silence. God doesn't speak through his prophets the way the Israelites are expecting him to speak. Then Jesus shows up, and one of Jesus' disciples is a man by the name of Matthew, and Matthew begins with these words, if you're in Matthew chapter one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. We are going to start by looking at three stories today. And I'm going to go through them pretty quick. Our first story is Judah, uh, pardon me, is Jacob. He can be found in Genesis chapter 25. As you're flipping there, I'm going to go through context each time just to give you a picture of what's taking place. Over and over again in the scriptures, I believe it's 35 times in total, we hear about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs of Israel. These are the fathers of Israel. So I mentioned earlier in Genesis 1 to 11, we're given this big story of in the beginning. In June, we're going to go through all of Abraham's story. Abraham's story starts in Genesis chapter 12, and it goes like this. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In he's opening two verses, there's three promises that take place. The first promise is, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. For that to happen, he has to have children. We're going to talk about that in June. It is a long time coming. So Abraham eventually has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 other kids. The second blessing is that you are going to be rich. And so he promises that to Abraham, he has incredible wealth, his son has wealth, and we're gonna see that Jacob has wealth as well. The third one is really interesting for us. The third one is, I'm going to be a blessing through you to all the peoples of the earth. To the best of my knowledge, Uh, Of all the different nationalities represented in this room and online, I don't think we have a single Jewish attender in our church. If you do have Jewish heritage, come meet me, because to the best of my knowledge, we don't have anybody. But the blessing goes on to all of these people. Eventually, um, Abraham has his son Jacob, uh, Isaac, Isaac has his son Jacob, and this is where our story picks up in Genesis chapter 25, picking up in verse 21. If you like following along word for word, I always preach from the ESV. So this is Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now you hear that, and you go, this is good news, until we hear about what's to happen. The children, plural, struggled together within her. And she said to God, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red and all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah bore the the children. Now, I don't know uh, if you have kids or not, but um, when my wife and I had our kids, we put a lot of work into their names. We had this plan. We had a plan if our son was blonde or uh, brunette, if a daughter was blonde or brunette, we had names uh, laid out for us. And so we had two boys, they have very English names, and then we thought we were gonna have a third boy, we ended up with a daughter, and so we took two days to name her. This is not the case with Isaac and Rebecca. Their first son comes out and they say, hey, you're Harry, so we're going to name you Harry. And you can imagine their friend saying like, hey, how did you come up with your name? And he would go, I'm Harry. <laughs> Jacob is a little bit different. We read that Jacob came out and he was holding his brother's heel. And so they name him Deceiver. What do you think? That's a cruel thing to do to a little kid. But if you're walking along and somebody grabs your heel, what happens? You get tripped up. And so they named him Deceiver as someone who is going to trip people up. But it's a problem that's going to continue to carry on. Uh, as soon as we're introduced to uh, Jacob and Esau, we read this. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So already God has said, there's two different nations in your womb, Rebecca. And then the very next part of that passage, we have Rebecca saying, I love my younger kid and my husband loves the older kid. So you can just tell as the reader, oh, there's going to be problems here. If you have chapter 25 open in front of you, you can see the very next thing is we have Jacob deceiving his brother. Esau comes back from the field. He's hunted some game. He is so hungry because of the work he's done. And he says to his brother, hey, you're making some stew. Can I have a bowl? And rather than Jacob saying, yes, Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Now, for some reason, Esau goes along with it and basically gives up his inheritance for a bowl of stew. Now we know something bad is about to happen. We continue on in uh, Genesis chapter 27. We're gonna read the first 13 verses so you get a sense of the story that's happening here. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. He answered, here I am. Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, go out to the field and hunt some game for me. Prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it in, Rebekah said to her other son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I might eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go out and bring them to me. Remember now, these are Jesus' descendants. Noah gets these holy descendants who are so good that God just whisks them up and doesn't even let them die. Jesus has descendants who are deceivers, who are liars, who make a mockery of what it means to be a follower of God. But Jacob obeys his mom, that's what he's supposed to do, and he goes to his dad, and he pretends to be his brother, and his dad eats of the game and blesses him, and so now Jacob has stolen his brother's birthright and his blessing. As you can imagine, his brother Esau comes in, and he is livid. At the end of chapter 27, we read this, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill My brother. Well, Rebecca doesn't want her favorite son to die. And so she pulls Jacob aside and says, you know, I think it's probably time for you to leave or else your brother is going to kill you. And so she goes and talks to her husband Isaac and says, "Um, we agree, let's send our son to Rebecca's uh, brother named Laban in a different land. And so Jacob takes off and he arrives in a different land and the first person he sees is a girl named Rachel and he thinks, wow, she's beautiful. So he goes and he talks to Rachel. He impresses her, she impresses him. And then he finds out, this is actually my cousin. This is Laban's daughter, his uncle's daughter. And he wants to marry her and have her for his wife. Now before you think, well, that's kind of gross. What's the deal with this um, incestual relationship going on? Remember, this is the beginning of humanity. Across the entire globe, there's maybe 50,000 people. Marrying a cousin is actually fairly normal. What's not appreciated is the polygamy that's going to take place afterwards. Throughout the Old Testament, we read time and time again that a person had multiple wives. The narrator will say that and he will never, neither say it positively or negatively, he will just make a statement. But every single time it goes poorly, which is why in the New Testament we read regularly uh, an elder, a pastor, a leader must be a person of one spouse. Anyways, back to what's taking place. So he talks with his uncle, and he says, um, let's agree on a bride price, and they agree that he will work for his uncle for seven years, and then Rachel will be his wife. So he works for these seven years, and the scriptures say it felt like a day it went by so quickly. And so they have a big wedding celebration, and there's lots of alcohol, and the bride is wearing a veil, and he takes her into his tent, and he wakes up the next morning, and it's not Rachel. It's Rachel's little sister, big sister, I think, and he wakes up, and he's furious and his uncle goes well should have paid more attention how about this how about you work for me for another seven years and I'll give you Rachel and so he agrees to do that at the end of the 14 years he says I can't work for my uncle anymore I can't trust him and so he lies to his uncle he takes his um, two brides and now has 12 sons who knows how many daughters and they start running away I know I'm going through this really quick let's talk about the deception that's taken place Jacob has stolen the birthright and the blessing from his brother. His mom is deceiving his brother and his dad. He goes and meets his uncle who deceives him into working for him extra long. Because he's been deceived, he then goes and deceives his uncle and takes away some of the flock to rescue it for himself. His wife, Rachel, has deceived her dad by stealing some household gods. And oh, by the way, Isaac and Abraham are a bunch of liars as well. And you start going, can this story get any worse? And so uh, uh, Jacob takes his two wives, all of his kids, and they start going to a new land. And lo and behold, there is Esau. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you can flip to chapter 32. It'll say something like this. Jacob fears Esau. 14 years earlier, his brother said, the next time I see my brother, I am going to kill him. And so you can imagine, Jacob is thinking, this is going to be absolutely miserable for me. What do I do? And so he tries everything he knows how. He's like, I've deceived my brother. That hasn't worked. My brother's not going to be impressed with how strong I am or how big my family is. So I guess the only thing I can do is maybe buy my brother's blessing. And so he sends herds and flocks to his brother in front of himself so that hopefully that would be a peace offering. If you hop online and do a little bit of math with what he gives his brother, it would be the equivalent of well over half a million dollars trying to appease him. This past week I was uh, meeting a friend for coffee and I said, you know what, Uh, I'll I'll pick up the coffees and then I'll bring it back to the office, we'll meet in my office. So I'm in line at a drive-through and I see this person's uh, car in the screen in front of me and I believe it says, if memory serves right, you never know how strong you are until being strong is all you have. This is what Jacob has tried. I have tried everything I know what to do. I am strong, I am good looking, I am smart enough to be deceitful and conniving, and even if I get caught, I can get out of it. But God, now it's not working anymore. My strength doesn't matter anymore. My wealth doesn't matter anymore. My brother has an army of 400 people, and they're coming towards me. I can't do this. The bumper sticker is wrong. Rick Warren has a quote that's very similar. He says this, You never know God is all you need until God is all you have. And so he sends all of the flocks ahead to appease his brother, to be a peace offering. Here's a whole bunch of wealth, way more wealth than you could ever know what to do with. And he stays back, and in Genesis chapter 32, he wrestles with God. Now, I say that comment, and you might think to yourself, oh, I've wrestled with God. Uh, I've wrestled through prayer. I'm wrestling through discernment. Joel did a phenomenal message last week on how to make choices and, and follow God through that. But this is different. God literally comes down and starts wrestling with Jacob. And so here is Jacob, a strong man who's probably never been beat up by anyone, and he's wrestling with God. And something beautiful happens. I wrote this down in my notes. A God who is only all-powerful can't understand our weakness. A God who is only weak doesn't have the power to rescue us. But a God who is both powerful and weak can meet us in our weakness while having the power to rescue us. So here is Jacob wrestling with God. I believe he's wrestling with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and they're wrestling together, and this is what happens in chapter 32, verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then Jacob said, let me, oh, pardon me. Then God said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God says to him, your name is Jacob. From now on, your name will be Israel. One who strives with God. And something fascinating is happening here. Here is a man who his whole life, he has done fairly well for himself. He got the girl of his dreams. He has a big family. He has incredible wealth, but his strength can't help him. And God is showing us this upside down kingdom that is taking place, that it's not until he realizes his weakness that he becomes the person God has called him to be. You see, if Jacob would have won the wrestling match, he would have lost, but in losing the wrestling match, he wins, and God can use him for his plans. That's story one. Back to Matthew one. So Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. I expect this all to be memorized by the end of today's service and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Second story this morning is the story of Rahab from Joshua chapter 2. At the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So we just looked at Genesis. The Israelites are now a great and mighty nation. Um, Estimates are anywhere between one and three million people. They arrive onto the cusp of the promised land. They've just been traveling through the desert for 40 years. Moses has been um, leading them and guiding them during this time. And they're standing at the brink of the promised land. Moses passes away and hands the baton to Joshua. Joshua the name of the author of the book. Joshua is a military leader, a military commander. He understands that if they're going to take over in Canaan, he's got to do some recon. And so we read this, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Jericho was um, an army settlement. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. We are introduced to Rahab a few more times in scripture, in Joshua chapter 6 when the story unfolds, again um, two more times in the New Testament. Each time she is referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Could you imagine that being your moniker, Rahab the prostitute? Imagine you're introducing me to one of your friends and you're like, oh, hey, this is is my friend Dave, he's a liar. (laughs) And someone goes like, oh, I, I think I know him. Uh, Dave the liar, the guy who always lies all the time. And I say, yeah, that's me. Can you imagine being in heaven being like, oh, this is Rahab the prostitute. That's horrible. That would be like my friend Jason being like, hey, I'm Jason. I'm a Cowboys fan. Don't tell anybody that. Nobody cheers for the Cowboys and shouldn't. I don't, didn't hear any amen, but that's okay. <laughs> I think I accidentally hit backwards. My apologies. But this is what um, they say about Rahab in Hebrews chapter 13, which is um, the the hall of actually this is Hebrews 11. My apologies. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So we've talking about Jacob the deceiver. We've talking about Rahab the prostitute. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't know if God can accept me. I don't know if God has plans for me. I don't know what role I'm supposed to do because I have some significant skeletons in my closet. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, murdered Christians. God loves you. He has forgiven you. He has blessed you. He has chosen you. He has great plans for you if you believe in him. If Satan is telling you you cannot serve, that is a lie from the devil. And God has incredible plans for you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. There's a blessing waiting for you. The story continues on. These spies show up. And um, Rahab hides them upstairs um, on her rooftop. And so the king of Jericho sends some, uh, his men to Rahab and says to Rahab, where have those spies gone? And Rahab says, oh, I don't know. Uh, they left earlier this day and I don't know which direction they went, but I think it was that way. And so the king's men go by and she goes back up to the top to her rooftop and says to these Israelites, tit for tat, I have saved you. Will you save me? Now then, please swear to me by the Lord as I have dealt kindly with you. You also will deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. If you're unfamiliar with the story, what happens next is these spies give her a scarlet cord, a red cord, and say, we are going to come back to Jericho. We are going to defeat Jericho. If you um, hang the scarlet cord from the window of your home, her home was built into the side, uh, the wall of the city of Jericho. This is done for people who don't have a lot of money, for people who are of a lesser social status. If you hang this cord, we will see you and we will rescue you. Now, you might hear that and go like, oh, that's a really neat story. But did you know that it points back to 40 years earlier? The Israelites are in Egypt and the Israelites are slaves to the Egyptians. And God comes and he uses his servant Moses and he sends plague after plague after plague upon the Egyptians. But Pharaoh still says, I will not let your people go. And so there's the 10th and final commandment where God says to the Israelite people, take a lamb, cut it, and with the blood, paint it on the doorframes of your home. And if you do this, when the angel of death comes, I will rescue your people. So not only has God rescued the entire nation of Israel 40 years earlier, but he's now saying to one individual, hang the scarlet cord and I will rescue you. To add another layer to what's taking place, The book of Joshua is about a holy war. What separates a holy war from a regular war is when God says, I want you to go and fight. I will fight for you. I will rescue you. I will provide for you. What's the difference between a holy war and a regular war is in a holy war, God says, all the spoils belong to me. In a regular war, you would capture the livestock and you would keep them for yourselves. In a holy war, God says, sacrifice them all, maybe give them to the priests. In a regular war, you would keep all the spoils, the gold, the silver, the trinkets for yourself. In a holy war, God says, melt them down or give them to the temple. In a regular war, you would make people your servants and slaves. In a holy war, God says, destroy them all. But because of the law of Harem, which is the principle of the holy war, if God says, I will save people, they belong to me. Rahab the prostitute, Jacob the deceiver, they belong to me. Story number three. So Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the greatest king in Israel. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Notice that we read about Rahab and we read the word Ruth. Why doesn't it say what David's wife's name is here? It's because it's a reminder to everybody listening, remember what the greatest king did and his fall from grace. Our third story this morning, the story of David from 2 Samuel chapter 11. Again, allow me to set the scene. So it goes, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, um, book of Samuel. Now the nation of Israel has taken over most of the promised land. They are now uh, a nation, a kingdom, and the people of Israel cry out to God, everybody else has a king, why don't we have a king? And so God says to Samuel, his prophet, you're a kingmaker. Go and anoint Saul, the next king of Israel. But Saul is a lame duck. He's not a good leader. And so we read in 1 Samuel chapter 13 that Samuel says to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And if you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, David, and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. David is the golden boy. This is the David who kills the giant Goliath. This is the David who marries Saul's daughter. This is the David who leads groups of men. This is the David who doesn't kill Saul even though Saul is trying to kill him. This is David that everything he touches turns to gold. At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies. At the beginning of 2 Samuel, David is anointed as king and that goldenness continues. He allows the kingdom to have incredible flourishing. He is called by many the greatest king of all of Israel. He continues to lead the army. They continue to expand the kingdom of Israel. David can do no wrong. So, why this story? We have Jacob the deceiver, we have Rahab the prostitute, and we have David with all the success. And maybe you're sitting here in this room or maybe you're watching online and you're resonating a little bit. You're going, man, I resonate with, with Jacob. My words have hurt people. My words have uh, broken relationship. My words might be the reason that I don't have the job that I wish for. Maybe you're here and you resonate with Rahab a little bit. And you think if anybody knew my brokenness, if anybody knew my sexual history, I don't know if they'd allow me to sit in this auditorium. Maybe you resonate a little bit with David, and you go, I've got a success story, but I'm on the verge of being broken, and I don't know if anybody knows that. First Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and following, in the spring of that time of year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, not himself, and the servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying himself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I pregnant. One of the challenges we face is when we think, well, that couldn't possibly happen to me. I would never fall to adultery. I would never embezzle funds from my place. I am Perfect. But there's this thing that's taking place where we recognize that all of these people are broken in some way and God is redeeming us, trying to make us beautiful. And if we recognize and we say to ourselves, I can be fallible. I can mess up. And maybe I don't look at pornography, but that sweetheart from college is on my Facebook and then I talk with her and then it leads somewhere else. And now I'm looking at pornography and now something bad is happening. I've never embezzled funds, but things are a little bit tight at work, and I know that if I just steal like $1,000, nobody will ever notice. And I could probably get away with a little bit more after that, because if nobody notices $1,000, well, they notice 5000 And if, if I cheat on somebody, or if I cheat on that test, and my prof doesn't notice right away, well, maybe I can cheat a little bit more, and I can get the job I really, really want. And we start going down this slippery slope. And so David thinks, well, I can get away with this. Who's going to stop me? And then Bathsheba says, I'm pregnant. And so David calls Uriah back from war and he has a meal with Uriah and he gets him drunk and hope that he'll go back home and he'll sleep with his wife, but he doesn't. And so David gets mad at him and he, and he finds out, well, why is he not going back home? And Uriah says, well, why should I get to sleep with my beautiful wife when all my friends are out on the battlefield? And he's the one acting like this great king after God's own heart. And David's acting like the opposite. So David gets him drunk a second time, hoping that it'll, it'll take place that night and it doesn't. And so he says to his army commander, send Uriah to the front of the lines and make sure he dies. Now, sometimes we read that and we go, oh yeah, that, uh, I know that story. But do you also realize that part of that story is that hundreds of other people die too, just to make sure Uriah is killed. Now, if you're keeping track at home, let's go through a few of the 10 commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife David messes up. You shall not commit adultery. David messes up. You shall not steal. David stole somebody else's wife. You shall not murder. I'm going to kill that man that um, I want his wife. And you shall not put other gods before the Lord your God. I'd rather have sex than a relationship with God. I found this out this week. I had no clue. Let me make sure I get the chapter right. In chapter 23, verse 39, we are introduced to David's mighty men. These are the um, nearly 40 individuals who work with David, who he's led, who he leads and guides, and they do incredible things together. Do you know who the very last man is mentioned? Uriah the Hittite. He was one of his closest friends. So now he's made someone pregnant. He's killed somebody. He's broken five of the Ten Commandments in half of a chapter. And God says to Nathan the prophet, an Old Testament prophet, was a rough job. Go and talk to the king of Israel. Tell him he has sinned. We don't have time to read it. It's an incredible story in how he does it. And David repents, Second Samuel chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. But amidst this brokenness, God still says, allow me to do something beautiful. Just 10 verses later, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. David is the greatest king of Israel. Solomon has the greatest Um, history of what Israel has done. He has made them wealthy. He has made them powerful. People have so much wealth and strength that people are thinking, this is the way it's always going to be. Solomon is great. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up on the platform behind me. I'd like the prayer team to come forward too. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I've got some skeletons in my closet. And when you talk to the prayer team, you can be as open or as reserved as you choose to be. There is no judgment, but there's this beautiful story of God saying to us, I want to redeem you. I want to take your brokenness and I want to make it beautiful. I'm going to weave gold into your story so that people can see and glorify Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe one of the most popular verses in all the scriptures, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we love this verse. This is the foundation of our faith. If we want eternal life with Jesus, it begins by believing in Jesus. But we don't always talk about the very next verse for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's like this beautiful Japanese art of kintsugi, where even though we're broken, the philosophy says you do not throw it away, but you show it and reveal it when it is put together in a beautiful way. We are made beautiful in our brokenness.